This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, that's kind of what some activist investors would like when it comes to eBay. And man, are they circling the company. Uh, shares of eBay, by the way, rallying, although they are off their highs of the session. The activist investors, they want to break apart eBay. So let's get into this with Jachendra Worrell, Global Internet and Consumer Electronics Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Also with us, back with us, Scott Kessler, Head of Equity Research at CFRA Research on the phone in New York. Scott, by the way, reiterating his hold rating on shares of eBay today. Jitendra, let me start with you. Let's break it down. So the big activist investor that we've all been talking about who's circling eBay at this point, although my understanding is he's not alone, is Paul Singer's Elliott Management. What do we know? Yeah, so basically, uh, you know, they want uh, to unlock more value of the uh, of the stock. Uh, base of you know, spinning off StubHub is is one of the points. Classifieds uh, getting rid of that business or spinning that off. Uh, refocusing on marketplace where you know there are some opportunities mostly internationally and cutting costs and and expanding buybacks i mean that's what they they're after to see like how we can unlock value of this of this company that has been underperforming uh the e-commerce secular trend that we have been uh, seeing so not as a complete surprise scott kessler hi carol no, hi. not really although i would say that um look i mean there aren't any silver bullets here, and I think that's pretty clear as much as Elliott has announced a 4% stake, and I think there's um, talk about unconfirmed reports indicating that Starboard um, might also have a a similar stake built up if you believe what the uh, unconfirmed report from the Wall Street Journal indicates. Um, Look, this stock, and there's actually an interesting table um, in the proposal released by Elliott, if you go to enhancingebay.com, you know you can find the materials there, and they show performance versus the peer group versus major indices. And eBay has been a pretty consistent underperformer. I think a lot of us know that. The big question, however, and I think the reason, one of the reasons the stock has come off a little bit, is because people have looked at the plan and kind of asked, what's new here? Spinning off um, StubHub and/or the classified business. Um, sure, that makes sense, but I don't know how that's going to really put eBay in a better position from a competitive standpoint. And that's really what's been dogging them for, I'd say, well over a decade at this point. I was just going to say, I feel like they've been working on this for a while. We had a story in the magazine over the last year or so, you know, kind of looking into this. Jachendra, I mean, what are you hearing from investors? I mean, is there, I mean, is there something eBay can do that makes them a bigger, more significant player uh, into what the internet online world, retail world, has kind of evolved to? Yeah, actually, if you look at their uh, user base and you know the seller base over the last couple of years, despite of like this tremendous uh, pressure from Amazon, 
at least they have held it. You know, they have, it's not growing as with slowing growth, but at least they've held it. They're not, they're not losing it. So that tells you that, you know, there might be like a category where they can protect and expand margins more so than revenue. So we think like going after advertising, uh, you know, the payments uh, uh, opportunity that they have, cross-border trade, social media commerce. Those are the areas where they can protect their niche, uh, but more focus on the profit side. That's more uh, feasible than, than sort of like changing the muscle memory of Amazon customers. Do you agree, Scott? Um, not entirely, to be honest. And I think the reason for that is, you know, historically, eBay would talk about this notion of gaining share across e-commerce. And consistent with what we see um, is that eBay is generating organic growth uh, far below the rate of increases we've seen in global e-commerce. And that just reflects the fact that as much as they've been holding the line to some extent and that revenues haven't been declining precipitously, um, they're still losing share on a pretty consistent basis year after year after year. Um, so I'm not so sure what exactly they can and should do to kind of address this. And throwing more money um, at the marketplace's business is all well and good, but I don't know if that leads to results. And I think, you know, what a lot of people I think have pointed to is, look, this is an underperforming stock. This is a stock that trades at, you know, multiples well below peers. But those don't really account for the reality, which is um, the growth trajectory or lack thereof for the company. And so I think, look, I mean, this company at this point is facing the equivalent of, you know, an existential crisis to the extent that, you know, you wonder if eBay really needs to exist in five to 10 years from now. Right, right. And that's a good point. I mean, Jitendra, what do we know? What's the timeline here? Uh, if we know of one uh, in terms of how this might play out here? Oh, we don't know. It's, uh, yeah. I think I think out of all the points that were uh, made, uh, the spinning of StubHub uh, uh, does uh, does make sense in, because you know it's it's a lumpy business, uh, it's events driven, and it doesn't really fit in their core marketplace strategy. As far as you know, their recovery prospects are concerned. I mean, look, nobody was expecting them to post double-digit strong growth like Amazon and and uh, the e-commerce sector uh, in general. But the profit growth is where they still have uh, things in their control a little bit more than the revenue. They can't control the users. They can't control the sellers. But they can control the cost. And they can control the uh, sort of the verticals that they can uh, chase. Uh, so, you know, this is uh, it remains a more of a profit growth story for us than, uh, than revenues, to be honest. Hey, Scott, just saving you 20 seconds. So you've got a hold rating. It's not worthy of a sell, or you think this is you're going to wait and see what happens here just quickly? No, I mean, yeah, it's a good question, Carol. Look, I mean, I think the business is fine, but it's not particularly interesting or exciting except yeah. for what's going on here with, uh, with Elliot. And so we'll see what happens in terms of what the company responds with and, right. and how they act. Hey, good. Thank you both so much. Scott Kessler, head of equity researcher over at CFRA Research on the phone in New York. Jachandra Worrell, our global internet and consumer electronics analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence from our 960 studio in San Francisco. eBay shares up 6.3%. This is Bloomberg. Well, 
If you want to go to cool places, then you definitely want to stick around for this next segment because it's really all about integration. Just check in with the folks over at Booking Holdings, home to Kayak, Open Table, Priceline, rentalcars.com, so much more. Just last week, in fact, news that Kayak is partnering with Open Table when it comes to redeeming points. So let's get into it and find out exactly what they're up to. Steve Hafner is back with us. He's co-founder, CEO over at Kayak. It's a unit of Norwalk, Connecticut-based Booking Holdings. He's normally in Stanford, although, right? Uh, a, a lot, a lot. Although I live in uh, Miami now. I was just going to say, because I said to him, boy, you got some nice tan going on here. <laughs> Thanks, Carol. And certainly not here happening in this cold uh, New York. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. It is good to see you. So Great to see you, too. Tell me a little bit about business and how things are going. Business is good. You know, d- despite the government shutdown and all of the policies are, that our government seems to put in place to, to keep business a little soft. We're 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 strong both at Open Table and at Kayak. That's interesting. So bookings what and things up over year over year, quarter over quarter. Uh, yes and yes. So uh, you know the the we're we're probably benefiting from the shift in consumer behavior to online. Yeah. Right. Both on the travel side, which is a little bit more mature, but particularly on the restaurant side. So you know fewer and fewer people want to interact with humans to get stuff done. I was just going to say that to you. Like you know, at first you're like, oh, I don't want to do this online, and then all of a sudden you do it, and you're like, oh my god, this was so easy. That's right. That's right. Especially for for you know restaurant reservations. You know we're, what we're still competing with is consumer habit of picking up the phone or walking into a restaurant, and you get a much better experience if you actually use Open Table to do that. How customized or personalized? Because I know sometimes when I've made a reservation, I'll be like, you know, um, this is what the event is. I need this kind of a table. I, I can really say, hey, this is what I need. How much can you easily do that online? You can't. Well, I mean, you can you can submit a note on Open Table to do that. Yeah. But what's really important, and what most people miss, is when you show up at a restaurant, you want to be recognized. And the only way to get that done is actually if you submit your reservation online, because that way we can tie it all together. And the and the restaurateur, the host, knows who's coming in the door and can say, "Oh, hi, Carol. Welcome back. Uh, I have your normal table. Um, this is the special tonight. They I know you like know this. About yeah, me. which is great. And, and and you want to have that digital record with you as you go to from restaurant to restaurant. Well, tell me about this partnership that you guys are doing between Kayak and Open Table and how it's working. Because I do, you know, you guys have a bunch of brands under the umbrella, right? And they're all kind of slowly integrating with one another. But there's kind of a method to this madness, right? It all kind of fits in. Yeah, I mean, well, the the simple observation is uh, travelers love to eat wherever they go and, and diners like to travel. And we have these sister brands of Kayak and Open Table and others that most consumers don't realize are together. And we challenge our teams to say, look, we, we have this great dining point program at, at Open Table where every time you make a reservation, you get some points. Right. And historically, you've only been able to redeem those for an Amazon gift card, which is not terribly exciting, or a discount off. Sorry, Amazon. He didn't really mean that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or, or a discount off a, a, a restaurant check. And we said, well, let's, let's find a better way. And last week, we announced that if you use your Open Table points, you can now either get an Amazon gift card say $10 or 2,000 points, or a discount on a restaurant check, let's say 10 to $25 for those 2,000 points, or $40 off a hotel reservation if you book it on Kayak. And that's available for over 400,000 hotels worldwide. So it's a great value for the consumer, and it's a great value for us. I mean, I get it from anybody who's part of one of these programs. Like, you like to have kind of options and choices, right, in terms of how you use these points. Why did you guys, though take so long to do it <laughs> why did you it's finally a, do it? it it's funny it's a it's a straightforward I- idea especially when i think like i look at everything under the umbrella like you would think anyway yeah but it's it's a lot harder to pull some of this stuff off why particularly with regard to privacy policies and terms and conditions so you know when a consumer gives their credentials to open table 
uh, historically, OpenTable wasn't allowed to share any of that information with Kayak or other sister brands. Right. So we had to completely, as a first step, just rewrite that basic logic. Uh, so that when you came over to Kayak, we knew that you were an open table person. It's Carol. She has 22,000 points. She can redeem for up to $200 in value. That don't kind you, of stuff. Don't you realize, though, or don't you think that consumers are, I just, you know, I, I always make the joke of or, or laugh at myself that we like, we were kind of like in our home. We're never going to have one of those Google devices or we're never going to have Alexa or whatever. You know, but you realize how much you can do with these things and it makes your life easier. And I do think that people are getting used to, despite all the pushback against information and privacy, that they're also saying, well, wait, if I get something out of it, I'm okay with you sharing my information. Absolutely. And the other piece of the equation is as long as you feel like you're in control of the information that you're sharing and you're giving consent explicitly and with your knowledge, then people will will allow you to do a lot more with it. Um, I'm curious, you know, how important this is, like in terms of serving your, your customers and consumers in terms of what they want when it comes to kind of the hospitality industry, whether it's restaurants, whether it's hotels, what are you hearing? You know, I, well, I think everybody loves to travel, first of all, and they love to eat out. And what we're looking, what people are looking for is an answer to make it easy for me to do all that. So make sure, how, how do I know I'm going to the right uh, destinations? How do I know I'm paying the right price for my airline ticket, staying at the right hotel, going to the hot new restaurants or, the, or you know, whatever the right restaurant is for that occasion? And they want to do that with as little stress and friction as possible. So what, you know, what we're trying to do at Booking Holdings, so across all of our travel brands, is create that experience in a, in a very frictionless way. One last thing, I'm going to go back to just 10 seconds here. Again, you think what you're seeing from the consumer, they feel pretty confident based they love on it. the numbers, but confident about the outlook. Oh, in terms of the economic outlook. Uh, look, people by, by just definition are, are, are just optimistic. But right now, we're not giving them a lot of, of things to be optimistic about, given the, the government shutdown, et cetera. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Um, I know you're going to travel home quickly because it's warmer. <laughs> Steve Hafner, thank you. Co founder, CEO over at Kayak, based in Stanford. But, uh, in our Interactive Broker Studio. I'm doing So we are going to be talking a lot about the cloud, and we'll get into that because uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be hearing a lot from technology companies, and we'll also get an update on how companies, in terms of capital expenditures, what they're spending or not spending on technology, and of course, as we know, so much is focused on the cloud as we speak. So let's get into this. Nico Grant is Enterprise Technology Reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Hey, Nico, good Good to have you here. I got to tell you, the story caught my attention this morning when I was reading in, you know, as we await those tech earnings. Uh, tell us a little bit about your story because um, the cloud has helped out these technology companies big time if you take a look at uh, the last uh, few rounds of earnings releases. That's absolutely true, Carol. You know, earnings season is upon us uh, for the technology industry. And I think what we're going to see is it won't be a very happy one for all companies. Um, So particularly when you look at companies that sell to uh, corporations uh, or enterprise companies, the companies that will do well this season are ones that have been buoyed by cloud spending. Now, This includes companies like Amazon and Microsoft, to a lesser extent, Alphabet, which have these massive public clouds uh, that customers continue to see demand for. And it also uh, would include some of the cloud stocks that have been surging. So companies like Salesforce or Workday 
which have these applications that help companies manage their customers or manage their employees or finances, those companies will do very well. The companies that will do poorly are companies like HPE or NetApp, for instance, uh, according to analysts. These are companies that make servers and storage hardware, and we're seeing a shift away from those companies in favor of the cloud. Right, so distinction between cloud companies again and those that play into the hardware space. Exactly. And today we'll see with IBM this interesting company that is halfway between the two. Um, IBM analysts expect we'll see falling sales, actually, uh, for the reported quarter, even though IBM has rebranded itself as a cloud company. IBM also has, has seen lots of demand challenges. You know, much of its uh, part of its business uh, is a consulting business, ultimately, um, as the way companies buy technology has changed that has affected IBM. And IBM also uh, relies on mainframes, which is a 1960s hardware uh, technology to store lots of data. It actually is a very profitable unit for the company, but IBM, uh, like some of its peers, uh, has seen waning demand. Yeah, and I mean, IBM was beat up, you know, pretty big time last year, um, although a lot of companies ended up being beat up thanks to the, the fourth quarter sell-off. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so when you when IBM reports, is it what will you be focusing on? Because it is about the cloud. Is it, again, how they're growing that business, how they're kind of shifting, the, you know, the company's business? Is it all about that? So I would say um, that the expectation that sales will fall is sort of baked in at this point. I think profit will be uh, pretty important. I think it's also important to keep in mind that IBM announced this blockbuster acquisition of Red Hat, which Mm -hmm. uh, we first reported at Bloomberg. And Ginny Rometty, the CEO of IBM, said explicitly at that time, uh, late last year, that the company was buying Red, uh, Red Hat for the revenue. So I think there is an expectation that IBM will grow its, uh, its sales inorganically with that acquisition. I think um, investors and analysts will be paying attention to you know, any more word about the Red Hat uh, integration. Mm-hmm. I think also they'll be looking at, at profit and they'll be seeing also, even if sales decline, how different, uh, you know, breakout units perform. If sales decline, but uh, they see some acceleration or momentum in the cloud units, then that could be beneficial and we might see the shares rising. Hey, what about, uh, Nico, a name like Intel? As you point out in the story that you did with Ian King and Dina Bass, um, you know, this is uh, a server chip microprocessing company, mm-hmm. uh, sell a lot of stuff, as mm-hmm. we know, and they had a big jump in sales, right, in the most recent quarter, or the third quarter. What are we expecting? What should we, you know, be kind of watching out for when it comes mm-hmm. to Intel? So Intel is a very special case, I think, among the hardware names, in that even though it's not a software maker, it makes chips, processors, Intel supplies to many of these major cloud computing companies. And so Microsoft, Alphabet, um, we have uh, also 
uh, Oracle to some extent, and Amazon, they all are building out these massive data centers around the world uh, in order to serve new cloud customers. I think the expectation is that Intel will continue to see uh, very strong demand for its servers, which, which power those data centers so long as cloud demand remains strong. But the big concern right now is companies like Microsoft and Amazon in particular mm-hmm. have built so many data centers that it won't last forever. And we may see uh, that start to start to uh, go down. And if so, the question is whether companies like Alphabet and Oracle, which have you know greater cloud aspirations for themselves, will uh, pick up the the pace and actually uh, you know make up for some of that demand that the current market leaders will. Will no longer have. You know, I feel like a tale of, of tech can be kind of told through a couple of different companies, but it's funny, you, you know, as you just talked about IBM and how they're trying to shift and change, and they've certainly been beaten up by investors if you look at kind of what happened last year. Microsoft, mm-hmm. I feel like, is the one that just kind of crept up from behind. <laughs> we know they're huge. We know they're important to the technology space. They did well in terms of their share price overall last year, but they seem to just quietly, you know, be kind of, you know, making their way in terms of carving out space, you know, in the cloud Mm -hmm. and so on. Yeah, I mean, Microsoft has been this really massive story in enterprise technology over the last half decade. And I think it is the example for companies such as IBM, such as Oracle, such as SAP of Germany, that change is possible. Um, But you, you really do have to want it. And I think that even though Microsoft kind of operates with this sheen of conservatism uh, from Satya Nadella, who's pretty, you know, no drama, uh, the fact is that the company had struggled in cloud computing. And when it decided to, you know, put its best foot forward, it did so with a massive investment over the years, even though it's number two to Amazon. Amazon has a lot of enemies as a company, and Microsoft deftly takes advantage of that. It is, you know, forming these partnerships with all of these retailers and other companies that compete against Amazon to get their cloud businesses. And it has been really investing in innovation and R&D. And so Mm. we've seen it uh, in the sales growth, and we've also seen it in the market cap. Well, certainly a lot to keep us all busy in the next couple of weeks. Nico, thank you so much. Great curtain raiser uh, when it comes to the tech earnings that we will be seeing over the next two weeks. All kicking off uh, with IBM after the closing bell. Shares of IBM, by the way, as we mentioned, down 26% last year. But as we speak, that stock's down about one and three quarters percent. Nico Grant, Enterprise Technology Reporter at Bloomberg News from our 960 studio in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Radio. I went everybody's head about the bird. All right, yeah, we're going to talk about uh, Bird. It's uh, one of those companies that makes those scooters that you're seeing kind of all over the place, uh, and in particular on college campuses. This is a fun, interesting, dangerous, potentially story. Uh, It just shows uh, some of the conflicts that can arise. Uh, Colleges love them or hate them, depending on who you talk to. We're talking about scooters. Here with this uh, somewhat ironic story, Janet Lauren is endowments reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio in New York. Her story, by the way, featured... In the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, it's going to be out later this week. You can also check it out at uh, 
Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg. Nice to have you here. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. Thanks for having me, Carol. So I have to say thanks to you. Uh, you showed Paul Brennan, my producer, and myself uh, this video that's been circulating. First of all, tell us about this video, and then we'll get into your story. So this video is care of the University of Georgia, and uh, they had some cameras on their campus shuttle buses and they caught some kind of scary and hairy and brazen scooter riding. I mean, come on, they're crazy. They're riding between the curb and a bus. Yes. They're riding down the middle of a road yes. against the traffic. It's all true. And it- I think that's what is making college administrators a bit nervous about these scooters. Yes, it's true. People absolutely want to ride them. But uh, they're riding around without helmets and they're you know, brazenly riding in places where maybe it's not the best idea to be riding. And we should point out, it's not just colleges. We've seen it also, right, in yes. various towns and you know, where people are just leaving scooters on the sidewalk and people are tripping over them. So everybody's kind of trying to kind of figure out what to do with them. Well, it's an upending technology like Uber. Yeah. And if you are I was in Princeton last week and you know, it's 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 you can certainly walk it, but if you've got to go, you know, three quarters of a mile, it'd be great to be on a scooter. So for that last mile transportation, it's a great idea. Colleges are just very concerned about, you know, the safety, the parking, and cities are as well. Which is like, okay, until someone says, yeah, we got to do something about these scooters. And then the endowment, head of the endowment comes in and said, you know, uh, we're investing in that startup that's uh, making those scooters. There's a a fun (laughs) anecdote in our story about a, a senior staff meeting at Michigan State where, you know, folks in the administration were saying, well, we've impounded a lot of these scooters and you know then next person to pipe up is uh is the guy who runs their almost three billion dollar endowment and says you know what we own more investors in the fund uh, that put money into bird and of course michigan state is not alone the university of texas endowment now the second largest u.s endowment right. is an investor and uh you know we talked about uh city san francisco had some issues with scooters and they came up with a very competitive bidding process um, they did not ultimately choose Bird. They t- they chose two other companies. But it just so happens that their San Francisco retirement fund is invested in the same um, venture capital fund that put money in Bird. And venture capital can be very lucrative. And endowments are seeking those right funds that could bring them some some returns. If you look at Yale, their original endowment, their, I'm sorry, their inv- original investment of $2.7 million in LinkedIn produced almost $85 million in gains for the endowment. That's crazy. So everybody's looking for that. Well, right. And how many conversations have we had between ourselves and also when you bring in some of these folks who run who who manage these investments who say yeah we're looking for yield and increasingly it's beyond the plain old vanilla investments right it is venture capital it's private equity it's all these things absolutely and you know if you're on a college campus and you've got to get around you know michigan state is 5200 acres right you know it's a it's it's an ideal situation for that last they call it that last mile transportation you've got to get around campus but you don't want to get in your car or maybe you, they don't have a place to park. You know, it's it's a very plausible solution. I got to tell you, I got like a seven, eight minute walk to my train. Sometimes I think, I wish I had a scooter to just like, <laughs> just, just fly on it. So what are they doing? What are the schools doing? So here they are, they've got this problem and they really want to deal with it because they want to make sure everybody stays safe, right? Because right. it's probably just a matter of time before there are accidents and, and they want to avoid that. So how do they balance that 
with the investments that they're making. Well, in the case of the University of Georgia, which is not an investor, they've impounded over 1,200 scooters. And Michigan State has impounded a few hundred. And Michigan State's, uh, you know, their acting president told me that they're trying to work with the scooter companies on campus to get things like designated parking spots and sharing data and, you know, have the, the users comply with the rules. And I think uh, once it's an established thing on campus right. and people know where to put them and it, at the university of texas for example now they're threatening a 150 dollars fine if you're parking it in the wrong spot because you know the colleges are just concerned that they're in the middle of the campus what right. if you're in a wheelchair and there's a scooter in the middle of the sidewalk or people could trip over them you know they're very concerned about about these types of incidents happening. And it's, I think, just something that has ramped up before everybody anticipated, right? Kids have had scooters forever. Right, but these are <laughs> but motorized. This is different. And these are motorized, correct. And, you know, you think of some campuses are quite hilly, so you just, you know, you have to be super careful. It's nuts. Anyway, it's a great story. Thank and I'll you. put it out at my Twitter feed and also check it out because it is in uh, the Bloomberg Business Week magazine this week. It'll be out later this week, but it is on the Bloomberg and also at Bloomberg.com. Check out Janet, too, on Twitter at Janet Loring. Janet, thank you. Thank you. Great story. Janet Loring, Endowments Reporter at Bloomberg News in our Interactive Brokers studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. This is, uh, we have stocks pretty much hovering near their lows of the session, and most names in the S&P 500 are lower today. Let's talk a little bit about the markets. Alan Zafrin is with us uh, once again, Senior Managing Director, Wealth Manager at First Republic Private Wealth Management, over $126 billion in assets under management. Alan joining us from uh, Palo Alto, California. Hey, it's good to have you back with us. You know, I was thinking about when I was reading over my notes, um, preparing for our broadcast today and looking at some stuff uh, in regards to what you're up to, Alan. I was thinking about, you know, what's the conversations going on in Silicon Valley right now, especially as we get ready for a couple of weeks of Silicon Valley and big tech earnings. I'm just curious, what are you guys hearing? Go to a cocktail party, you go out for dinner, you run into people. What are they talking about? Uh, hey, Carol, great to be on the show. Um, you know, the talk here is a handful of things. Uh, on the one hand, there is a concern about China and U.S. trying to find a way to get along to each other because there is a lot of uh, growth uh, that comes from selling into China and Asian markets. And so getting some reconciliation of trade with China is a very important element. Another or a discussion completely on a different subject is all the pending IPOs that might eventually make their way. So Airbnb, Lyft, Uber, um, you could see a huge dollar amount increase in IPOs relative to the averages in the last five years. I think Bloomberg said we're going to have more than twice the amount in dollars raised this year in IPOs than we've had on average in the last five. There's some big names probably coming out, mm-hmm. and uh, it's, a, it's been a long time for some of that liquidity, and there are a lot of investors who've been sitting here uh, in private, private held shares for years just waiting to get their hands on some liquidity. Right, those big unicorns. But I mean, generally, overall, Alan, you're feeling like, are people more optimistic? Are people more cautious? Are people more downbeat? 
I'd say people have gotten on the margin a little bit more guarded, but I don't want to overstretch that. I, I would actually tell you part of that is what's going on with local real estate here. Mm. Um, in selected areas, local real estate prices have sort of been flattening out. Part of that, though, is a function of supply. There was such tre- tremendous growth in prices for several years that eventually builders decided to build particularly high high luxury condos and apartments not dissimilar than Manhattan. And so people look at that as you know one kind of soft indicator of way things are going, but there's still just unbridled optimism about the magnitude of technologies that are all being developed here in Silicon Valley between artificial intelligence and big data and the internet of things. It, it, there's just tremendous productivity improvements in the decades to come. So I, I don't want to paint too negative a picture. I can tell you that the longer term vision remains very positive on all the productivity enhancements that technological advances are going to drive for generations to come. All right. So in the long term, I get it. So optimism and, and, you know, money going into, you know, what may be the technologies of the future. Shorter term, though, we are getting ready for a couple of weeks of some big tech earnings, IBM after the close. And then we'll hear from the likes of Microsoft and and many others uh, in this world. What are you anticipating, um, Alan, and what it might mean for the direction of the equity trade right now? Well, it's a little bit worrisome in the sense that uh, multinational companies, and those are the ones you're talking about, the large cap tech names, there is some uh, earnings risk embedded in the fact they sell into overseas markets. And clearly, there was greater weakness uh, in Europe and in China over in the fourth quarter. And so you may see some element of that, along with currencies, a negative potentially. The dollar strengthening has an adverse effect on the translation of their overseas earnings. So there is some some short-term caution about what fourth quarter numbers might say with regard to currency translation and selling it as modestly weaker um, economies. However, there's no denying the growth of significant technological progress, the growth of the cloud, the growth of uh, internet services, and there's tremendous enthusiasm, again, about just the longer secular trends that are in the space. So it might be tough to be a trader and waiting for a quarter, uh, you know, particularly names like IBM, which frankly have sold down on something like 12 of the last 15 quarters after the report. But longer term, you can't deny some of these secular trends continue to persist. So when we look at some of the trends within the marketplace and look at earnings, I mean, earnings are, it's definitely expected to be, when all is said and done, Alan, a very different earnings quarter from what we've seen in the past. Mind you, you know, in some regard, it's, you know, tough comparisons to what we got a year ago uh, or so. Um, But what does that tell you more broadly about kind of where we are in this market cycle or what might it tell us? It tells me comparisons are getting tougher. It tells me that the easy money, so to speak, has been made. It tells me that most likely, if you look out on a three- to five-year time horizon, your uh, rate of return, albeit positive, might be slightly lower than historically average. Part of that may be the fact what you witnessed last year was margins, uh, I'm sorry, PE multiples compressing. Uh, people are seeing that economies are challenged to grow um, at, the, at, a, at the same pace they did 10 or 20 years ago because of aging populations. If companies are selling into an uh, economy that's growing more slowly, they themselves, their products and services just can't generate earnings as quickly. So I think what it's telling you is earnings growth rates on the margin are going to slow. The one piece of good news is when you have a peak in earnings growth, which is what we may have seen last year, 
that does not in any way mean that you're necessarily seeing the end of the bull market. If you go back, it turns out, going back to 1991, there have been 11 occasions where you can measure S&P 500 earnings growth. Ten of the 11 times where the peak growth peak was reached, stocks were actually up 9%, I'm sorry, on average 9% um, one year later and 18% two years later after the rate of uh, growth peaked. So a slowing growth rate does not mean the economy has turned into recession. You don't want to sell too early into a still-growing economy. Right, but it's a, it's kind of an interesting environment here, right? And I guess we're just, I don't know, when you look at the big macro stories that are out there, the macro issues, whether it's U.S.-China trade, uh, whether it's Brexit, whether it's, you know, a global slowdown, um, what what is it that you are kind of closely keeping an eye on here? Well, clearly, all, all those things are problematic. <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> so to, all of the above. Fundamentally, what you want to see is that you still have a, a yield curve that's somewhat upward sloping. Frankly, a, a two-year yield that uh, holds its value or goes up a little bit tells you there's still a real demand for money. Right. What you want to see is that credit spreads, the costs of borrowing for lower quality companies remain relatively stable. They say the bond, mark, bond market is the canary in the coal mine. If you see the low quality companies beginning to have to borrow at very high rates of interest or begin to default, that is exceptionally problematic, and that's usually a precursor to a broader economic slowdown. So those are typically the areas we would look. All right. Uh, certainly plenty there to keep you busy, <laughs> just to say. Uh, Alan Zafrin, thank you so much. Senior Managing Director, Wealth Manager at First Republic Private Wealth Management. Over $126 billion in assets under management. Joining us uh, on the phone from Palo Alto, California. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.